Hello, I'm Bailey from the Substack community team. If you don't know Substack, we describe ourselves as a place for independent writing. Our goal is to make it simple for writers to start paid newsletters. You're about to hear a recording from a recent Spotlight On event we did with a Substack writer. We host these workshops in partnership with writers from various categories, from local news to fiction, to learn from their experience building an independent writing career. To learn more and read recaps of these events, head to library.substack.com. Nice to see uh, everyone's faces and names in Zoom boxes. Um, thanks for your interest in uh, local news. Thanks for your interest in Substack and exploring these new models to support news in the future. And thanks, Tony, for uh, joining us here today, but not only that, for being on Substack early and showing the way here and showing a leadership role for what can be done. Would you mind sort of telling us why you care so deeply about local news? Yeah, I mean, my background is in local news. I worked as an editor and reporter here in Charlotte for uh, 10 or 12 years, uh, I guess. And, and really, you could kind of see the connections that you could make here and how important it was to have in local communities, somebody who is watching out and looking and isn't, you know, paid for by marketing or, or advertising, but they could actually go out and, and report things honestly and straightforwardly. And I think we've lost, if anybody on this call is in local news in, you know, certainly smaller to mid-sized markets, you know that we've lost a lot. We've lost a lot. These big, uh, I mean, the, the Metro newspapers that used to be cash cows, you know, they're now uh, owned by hedge funds. They're laying people off. They're buying them out. And the, the capacity of reporting high-quality local news has, has been reduced um, tremendously. And so it's not always maybe apparent in big markets, I don't think, necessarily in you know, New York or, or Los Angeles or Washington, where you have sell some pretty big players and good players. But, you know, in these smaller and mid-sized communities, I just think we've, we've missed a lot. And so I, you know, I was, I had freelanced for a while after I left The Observer. I worked for a national publication for uh, a couple of years. It closed and I said, well, I'll just go, I'll go back to freelancing. But I started looking around, you know, Hamish and said, um, you know, the local news here in Charlotte is pretty, it's gotten a lot weaker. And so rather than, you know, writing, you know, copy for a website. I said, well, maybe I can start something up that that provides some value. So that, that was sort of my motivation. And, you know, I live in Charlotte. I'm not going to move somewhere. I don't want to move to Washington or New York for a job in journalism. My home's in Charlotte and I care about Charlotte. And so that's important to me. So I figured I've got maybe some skills to bear. Why don't I give it a shot? Did you have a model in mind already? Did Substack exist at that time? Like, What was it that led you to this particular path? Yeah, well, I just... I don't remember how I came across Substack. You know, um, a magazine I was working for closed in December of 2018. I was taking some time to sort of figure it out. I was reading about the future of the industry, and I read about Substack, Substack somewhere. I don't remember exactly where it was. But um, I said, well, you know, I think I can do that. I mean, I know this community pretty well. I've lived here for more than 20 years. I think I could write some things that, that people would want to read. And at that time, I didn't, you know, newsletters were sort of a thing. You know, you had nationally, you had a lot of newsletters, you know, Morning Brew, The Hustle. Um, uh, you know, there were, there were a number of national publications doing it. There weren't a whole lot at the local level that were using a newsletter format as a vehicle to report original local news. I mean, newspapers have newsletters and they, you know, refer back to the websites. They need to get you to click and then they sell ads off of that. So I was kind of looking around and said, well, why don't I just give it a try? And I didn't really know what was going to happen. Obviously, the difference between doing something national and doing something locally is that 
you know, your audience, your potential audience is a lot smaller. You know, if I'm writing about cybersecurity or technology or national politics, you know, you have the whole country. Um, in Charlotte, you know, you have a much smaller potential audience. Incidentally, Charlotte's a city of about 900,000 people in a county of 1.1 million in a region of 2.3 million, just so you have some sense of sphere that I'm operating in here. But it was, it was just sort of more like, hey, let's try it and see how it goes. And Hamish, I remember, I, I think I called you or we, we talked a couple of times, either right before I launched or right after. And you, I mean, you were helpful with some advice. And you I mean, your advice was just, you know, just start writing, just do it. You know, and I, I know that Substack's advice is like, don't, don't overplan it, just, just get to it. And you can evolve it, right? You don't have, you're not stuck doing the same thing just because you started a certain way. And when you were starting out, did you have side gigs? Were there any other income earners or were you like investing yourself fully uh, on the Substack project and putting everything on the line with yeah. Now, I, I initially started out, I was freelancing a little bit on the side. I had some freelance clients that I did some work for. And, you know, the sweet spot was always if you could sort of freelance something and then repurpose it in the newsletter. That's a technique freelancers use, right? You, you sell it somewhere, you modify it, you sell it somewhere else. But it's like, I've got my own vehicle now. So it's like, okay, well, if I can sort of modify that and then excerpt it, it gave me it sort of does double duty. But no, I had some freelance projects that I did when I started. At what point did you decide to put most of your emphasis on shallow ledger and, and, and what gave you the confidence to take that leap of faith? So I started out in March of 2019. I think it went to 12 friends and family members. My mom was very happy to get it, you know, and then just asked them, Hey, if you like it, please tell people, send it along. I posted on LinkedIn. Our focus incidentally is, is sort of business adjacent news in Charlotte. It's not just straight up general news. Um, and, and so I posted on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and said, Hey, if you like it, um, you know, just please, please share. And I had no idea what was going to happen. I didn't know are a hundred people going to like it. And then, then it tops out. And what I found was it just sort of kept growing. Like, and we'll, I think, look at the slide a little bit later. But if you look at the total number of, uh, of email uh, readers, the total list, I mean, it's just a very steady upward line. So that made me think, okay, I've got something here. We got good, good, good feedback back. And this is, I was all free at this point. This was three mornings a week, 100% free. There was no Substack local at that time. Uh, if there was, I definitely would have applied for it. Um, and so, it, but then it was just, it was just that confidence of seeing those numbers keep going up, and then. You know, it's like uh, if you read Substack's materials, they say, well, a good idea of when you might want to go paid is, you know, if people are coming to you and saying, we will pay you for this, like that's a good indication. Like it, it's not like hundreds and hundreds of people, but, you know, a handful of people, maybe it's representative. So it was it was that kind of continued steady growth and the encouragement where I said, OK, well, why don't I make this partially paid and then I, I'll give up, um, you know, my, my freelance gigs and just go all in. If just some people are saying, I would pay you for this thing that I'm definitely getting for free anyway, uh, that's a really strong signal because not many people are like willing to come out of the woodwork. Right. They take my money, please take my money. So, right. so it must have been scary still. How does it feel making that leap? Well, yeah, you never, you know, you never really know. You sort of draw up the plans and you have a theory of, of what you think is going to happen. But until it actually happens, you don't really, it's a little bit of a leap of faith. You know, like, so we, we were, and I say we, we now have a managing editor, so I might say I, I might say we, but we, so we went, um, you know, we were free for almost an entire year. And, you know, the typical advice from Substack is you don't really need to wait that long. You could wait three months or less. Some people just right off the bat start paid. Um, I was nervous about it because I thought that once we switched over to paid, that maybe our growth would slow down because we'd be putting a lot of stuff that most people couldn't access. It wouldn't be as shareable. 
Um, that actually hasn't wound up to be true. But um, it was, but until that, I mean, that, that first day when we turned on the, the paid subscriptions, I mean, I knew some people would sign up, but it's like that first day, it's just like money just started pouring in. You know, it was a few thousand dollars and you're like, wow, okay, people actually really, this resonates with people and people are willing to pay for this. And it was, I mean, it was a, it was a tremendous feeling. It was a great feeling. I mean, it's not like, oh, this is so much money I can retire, but it's, it, I mean, it was a good feeling to know that what you're producing is, is worth something to somebody. Yeah, it's like it's a shot in the arm. It's a vote of confidence from your readers. You mentioned before that you kind of half expected growth to slow down on your overall mailing list once you introduced the paywall, but it, that didn't happen. What's your theory on why that didn't happen? Well, I think we've done a few things. I mean, first of all, we in, we increased um, the number of times we published. So now, I mean, we were at three mornings a week. We went to four mornings a week. So we added an extra publication day. So I think that helped. Um, and then I think we got maybe a little more sophisticated in sort of how we got the message. I think our journalism got better and that people started sharing it more. And I think it's almost like a snowball rolling down the hill a little bit. Um, you know, we've done a few things differently, you know, in the last year or, or so that I think have kind of kept that growth up. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't really, I don't really know. I mean, I think it's just sort of general momentum and sort of getting people realizing that you exist um, you know, and, and spreading it, spreading it around. I don't, I don't have a great answer. I mean, I'm happy it's continued. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think certainly, you know, publishing more, doing more on social media, being smarter about partnerships that we have. Um, I mean, I think, I think those have all helped. And how did you, why did you decide to make it, um, business news in, in Charlotte rather than just local news in Charlotte, for example? Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, my background is in business news. So I've been a, a business reporter and editor here for a number of years. So that's something that I kind of knew and felt comfortable with. I also thought that it was a good place to be in the sense that, um, you know, the local paper, it, the number of its business reporters had sort of declined, declined, declined. There's a Charlotte Business Journal here, but they're doing what they're doing, I think, is very different. I just thought I just saw an opportunity content wise. Um, to do that it, and it was comfortable to me it also business also has the advantage of if something's useful to somebody's business for a paid newsletter you know they can write it off okay right they can they can expense it they can charge it to their company um you know as a business expense if they use it you know um if it's helpful to them in their business so that's that's another advantage um you know i'm not opposed to doing local news and we do a fair amount of of general news but our theory has always been we want to do something that's better than what's out there in Charlotte, or we want to do something that's different than what's out there in Charlotte. Like there's no reason to just do, you know, uh, there's a, there's a, say there's a murder down the street, all the TV stations are going to be there. The major paper is going to be there. The NPR, if they're all going to be there, I kind of don't really want to be there. You know, there's no point in doing the exact same thing that everybody else is doing. So, um, so that's sort of one of the advantage of, of doing business news. Not a lot of people understand it, but there's a there's a pretty big market for it. Charlotte's kind of a business town. We've got banks, we've got tech companies. It's a pretty big, um, pretty big city. So I just saw an opportunity there, um, and it it worked well with my background. So that's that's sort of the direction uh, I went. And how have you thought about your editorial strategy, in particular when it comes to what to make free to anyone and what to make available only to paid subscribers? Yeah, that's a good question. I know a lot of people think about that and struggle with that and say, oh, well, okay, my paid product needs to be different than my free product. We try not to overthink it because 
we do a fair amount of breaking news, or at least maybe I should say news that's time sensitive. So, you know, our, our paid editions are Wednesdays and Fridays. Our free editions are Saturdays and Mondays. So if something happens on a Tuesday that we need to get in, we're going to put it in Wednesday and it's going to be in our paid issue and we're not going to overthink it. I mean, I guess I would say just generally, um, we would prefer that our free issues uh, have content that is shareable, you know, that people are going to read and be like, oh my gosh, you've got to see this. You know, like we had a, we had a piece we did a few months ago on um, DaBaby. I'm, I don't, I'm guessing most people are familiar with DaBaby. He's a rap artist, Grammy nominated. Uh, he, he's from Charlotte. Um, you know, can't, can't uh, repeat some of the lyrics, uh, you know, on this uh, family-friendly um, Zoom call, I'm sure. But, but, you know, we had a story about it. You know, he built, basically moved into this new um, mansion on the outskirts of Charlotte and had, it was sort of annoying the neighbors, having loud parties, and police have been called there a number of times. Nobody had written about it. We went out there, you know, we wrote about it. And I mean, that's an example of something we were going to, you know, if we had a choice, we were going to put that on a free day because that's a pretty shareable story. Now you might say, are people who are interested in business coverage in Charlotte, North Carolina going to subscribe to us because we have unparalleled coverage of some rap artists that they may never have heard of? Maybe not. But I mean, that was one of our most viewed stories and it gets the name out. So, you know, we try to make things that are shareable on the free days and things that are maybe more specialized on the paydays, but you know, we try not to overthink it. Cool. Yeah. So some of the things that come up quite often and talking with writers about what to do to make their publications work with the subscription models that those things that you touched on, like something distinctive and different from anything that's else that's out there. Um, having the free stuff being the most accessible and most likely to be widely shared. And then that gets in a whole lot of readers that might not have otherwise seen your stuff. And then, the paid stuff is more like in the weeds, going deeper with people and, and a level of depth that's not just generally available from the mainstream media. So right. awesome. I, do, I do think you want to do those sometimes on the free days, though, too, Hamish, just to show people as an example of, hey, here's the kind of, st you know, and you, and you broadly say it like this, you know, or maybe make a, a paid day and make it free and say, here's an example of the kind of stuff you'll get if you subscribe. You know, th I think that's okay to do once in a while, too. Uh, how does it feel running a business like this? Like, uh, it's you and the managing editors. It's two people essentially most of the time, I think. And for a long time, it was just you. Mm -hmm. And it's this relatively new model. So subscriptions are as old as time, but you know the Substack model, the paid newsletter model, is relatively new. And you're operating uh, in an industry that people assume is kind of dying, like yeah. local local news media. Um, so just, I'm just wondering what that's like for you psychologically. How does it feel being that operator, that businessman, that journalist, um, trying to do something like this at a time like this? It feels really good, honestly. I really enjoy it. I mean, I, I, it's a lot of work, and you know, people can put as much work as they want into it. I'm working a lot, but it's it's extremely rewarding. Just you know, the connections that you establish with readers. We hear a lot from readers. We're getting news tips, you know, all kinds of all kinds of things from our readers, which is great. I mean, it's very affirming. Um, you know, we have a good story to tell. You know, we have a growth story. And it's not a story, like like you mentioned, that a lot of um, people are accustomed to hearing. It's been all last 10, 15 years. It's been cuts, 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 buyouts, layoffs. It's been, and I don't want to minimize it, it's been bad. But, you know, we're growing. Look, we can say, look, we got a chart. And it's, yeah, sure, our, we're small compared to, you know, TV stations or a paper that's been around for a hundred years, but we're growing and that's a good story. And it's very fulfilling 
to me. It's really what I want to do. But, it, you know, I feel like I'm doing some of the best work of my career. I'm having the most fun I've had in my career, undoubtedly. You know, you have your own publication. You can you don't have to sit in a bunch of meetings to decide something. You can just go ahead and do it. The downside of that is you don't really have an editor, you know, unless you want to I mean, my wife reads some of the stuff. So there, there are pluses and minuses on that. I know a lot of reporters are probably happy not to have editors. But, you know, if you have a good editor, it can really make your, your work a lot better. And people here on uh, this call and people who hear about Charlotte Ledger in the news, they look at you and see kind of only success. <laughs> like, and the message you're saying here is that it's great and things are growing, but there must have been some things where you've like felt like it isn't going so well. There must have been some mistakes you've made that you've since learned from, like, do, can you share some examples of yeah. um, some things that other people could learn from? Yeah. You know, I guess we, we experiment a lot on a lot of different things and some of them work out and some of them don't. And, you know, we had a couple, you know, a, a couple little, but that's fine. You know, we, we can go ahead and we can make mistakes, but we've never had, we've never made a mistake where we've had 50 subscribers rise up and say I'm canceling or anything like that. But it's, you know, we, we've tried things and sometimes they work better than others. You know, we've done some discussions on uh, on threads, um, you know, which is, for those of you who don't know, it's a Substack feature that is sort of like a uh, online chat. You know, we had, it was fairly small turnout. It was fine. You know, we did some online happy hours. This is in November, December, the, you know, eh, turnout was fairly low, but people who went said they were okay. I don't know, maybe people were tired of Zoom. I mean, so we're constantly trying things. We're not really afraid to kind of try things and um, have them fail. Um, so, you know, I don't know, I guess if, if I had to do it over again, we probably would have gone paid a little faster, uh, a little sooner, um, rather than wait an entire year. But again, that was just sort of my nervousness. Why do you say, you know, well, I just think that it's sort of proven. I think, I don't know, it, it all, it worked out okay, but I just, I just think waiting a year with no income, with no revenue coming in, that's a long time. <laughs> You know, and it was it was fine. I, you know, worked out. My wife works, and we, I had some severance from the previous job and all that. But it was it worked out fine. But it's just, um, I don't know. In hindsight, we probably should have done that a little faster. And what are your hopes for the for the future with this? Like, where are you going to take the ledger? Yeah, I mean, we'll see where it goes. I mean, the growth is continuing. We're trying some new things. Um, we're we're trying to be sort of cautious and not getting too far over our skis about the commitments that we take on. But I'm happy, I mean, I love the um, the sections that Substack just rolled out in the last couple of months. I could see us having additional newsletters down the road. We just added a couple in the last month. You know, our primary vehicle is, is you know, the business newsletter, four mornings a week, but we added one on local obituaries and we added mm -hmm. one on transit and transportation. Those are both weekly. I could see us making those more robust. We're sort of testing those out and sort of seeing how they how they go. But if that works out well, you know, the ability for people to sort of build their own local newspaper or bundle their own local newspaper, I think is pretty appealing. And you can say, well, you know, I don't care about business, but I do care about government, you know, or I, I don't care about this, but I do care about that people sort of opt in. I mean, I think that has a lot of appeal. So we're, you know, I could see us potentially adding more, but you know, the revenue needs to be there to support that. Because our expenses are going up. You know, we use freelancers. You know, we have a managing editor. Um, so it's not like, oh, all the money goes directly into my pockets. You know, we have we have expenses. Got it. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, maybe we could sort of finish this off with a closing thought for everyone who's in the position you were in a couple of years ago, getting started. Um, what do you think is the greatest wisdom you can pass on to these people <laughs> who want to? Who want to do something like what you have done? 
I mean, I think you need to think about your audience and say, who is it that you're writing for? And I think there's a temptation in local journalism to say, well, you know, in, in our case, I'm writing about Charlotte. So anybody in Charlotte's going to be interested in it. And that, I think you need to hone down a little bit more and think a little bit more about who is it you're trying to appeal to and what are you, how do you find them and how do you speak to them and how do you find them? And yes, we'd like anybody, you know, anybody in Charlotte that wants to read what we're doing, happy to have them. But, you know, you need to, you probably need to think strategically about who are the people who are most likely to read you? Where do they hang out physically or online and how do you get to them? And so, you know, it's hard, I think, for journalists who, you know, whose background is in sort of writing and reporting stories to all of a sudden have to think like a, a business person um, and sort of use your brain on those those kind of marketing and strategy type of questions. Um, and then the other piece I would say is, you know, you're not in it alone either. Like I, I've gotten a lot of good advice from people who are doing local news by newsletter, exchange messages with, you know, uh, City Hall Watcher in Toronto and The Mill over in, uh, in England. And people have good ideas. I'm not saying I've got all the answers. I've got, you know, we've done it for longer than most people in the local news space on Substack. But I mean, there's always, there are always good ideas. And so steal those good ideas from other people. That's awesome. And we'll do more and more to build up that community over time with events like this and yeah. to help people learn from each other. So I appreciate that closing yeah. thought. So now we're gonna open up for a Q&A. Uh, I see we have a couple of questions in the chat already, but if you haven't left yours already, please put it in. Um, Bailey, where should, where should we start? Let's go with Hannah Raskin. Um, Hannah, hello. Uh, I'll ask the question, I suppose, but Hannah asked, um, I think a great, a great one, which is that what's worked as a strategy for recruiting subscribers in older demographics who maybe aren't as familiar with Substack or email newsletters. What are your thoughts on that, Tony? That's a great question because I think a lot of times, you know, the advice you hear on growing a newsletter is, um, put it on Twitter you know, let people know on Instagram. And but if you look at the research on who pays for local news, it's pretty clear that people in their 20s and 30s, statistically, do not pay for local news as much as people who are above 40. And that they're, that they're, you, that those are the people, those are your most likely customers. Now we have, we have fans, we have people who love us who are 26 years old and, and pay and pay. And it's great. But a lot of your people are going to be sort of in that, probably in that in that um, older demographic. So you kind of need to think a little bit differently. And so, I mean, Facebook, um, Facebook can be a good place in the sense that everybody's on Facebook, but you post on Facebook and not everybody's going to see it. So, you know, some of the things we've done, frankly, and they might sound a little bit like content marketing, but they're legitimate stories. You know, we, during COVID, we did stories on what's going on at the big retirement at Sun City, the big retirement community as, as the as people are locked down. And then you pass that story around out there. We've done stories on pickleball. I'm not saying to orient your coverage just to cover people who are 70 plus, but, you know, don't neglect them from your coverage because a lot of people, a lot of the other newsletters that are out there that are on very different models than Substack that are trying to push advertising and that are writing about the bar openings you know, they're, they're doing something different than you are doing. So don't just focus on those things. Just keep in mind who your customer is. And that, yeah, as far as reaching them, it is a little trickier. Um, everybody's got email. Not everybody's accustomed to getting local news delivered by email. And I had people tell me when I was starting up like, oh, I saw your blog the other day. And it's like, well, 
yeah, I mean, that's fine. It's not really, a, it's not a blog. It's, it's an email. It's an email newsletter. And they don't want it. What's an email newsletter? The whole national conversation about newsletters has really, you know, taken off and people just assume, oh, everybody knows what this is. They don't know what it is. And so it takes some time to sort of explaining it and over explaining it and just saying that the, maybe the top of everything is like, hey, this is an email newsletter. We're doing local news for Fresno, California or Boise, Idaho or whatever. And we're delivering you just over explaining it. Um, but yeah, that is that is an issue. So I, I would definitely keep that in mind. I have another great question from Thomas Smith, something you touched on, Tony, but maybe some members of the Substack team can also add some thoughts on this. Um, Thomas is, I think, reporting in the Bay Area or plans to, hopes to, and asks, what's the right balance in a saturated market between something very specific to differentiate from existing media and something broader to have a broader subscriber base? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough question. And it's a, it's a, you have to kind of strike that balance. I mean, if you go too niche, is anybody going to read it? Is there enough interest in it? I mean, I guess I, I would generally go back to sort of what I said before. You've got to be better or you've got to be different than what's out there. And you also sort of need to understand what the market is like. You know, one of the things I did uh, that was a, that was helpful, our you know, local library has a consultant. You can just business liaison. You can go to and you can say, okay, how many households are in this area? How You know, they they basically can give you marketing tools, the libraries can, of, of maybe what what demographics there are, how many people there are, which can be kind of helpful maybe in determining um, some of your strategy or at least, you know, your local strategy, you know, where, where do you go after or what are what are people interested in? But yeah, no, it's it's certainly tough. You know, we get, we've had stretches where we did, you know, we sell ourselves as a business-related newsletter. And we've had stretches where we went a couple of weeks where in the middle of COVID, we were covering the news of the day because it was so important. We didn't think it was being done particularly well locally. And we had people say, oh, I, I thought you covered business. Why aren't you writing about business anymore? You know, um, and so it's like, well, we've always kind of said, we're going to cover the big story, whatever it is. Um, and if it's big enough, we're going to, you know, we're going to cover it if it's, if it's important. But you do, you do kind of have to walk that, um, walk that balance uh, a, a little bit. I don't know if that's a great answer if anybody else wants to uh, offer any thoughts. I think a useful benchmark is, does this, can I get 10,000 people on my mailing list with this approach? Because if you get 10,000 people on your mailing list, it's pretty common on Substack that you'll convert, if you're doing your job well, you'll convert 10% of that to paying subscribers. And 1,000 paying people is enough to support a livelihood. So if you want really sort of a rough way of thinking about it, that's a pretty good way. I mean, often it's the often it's about the intersection of two things. It's not just Charlotte news. It's Charlotte and business, or it's not just um, climate change. It's economics and climate change. So if you have an and and you're focused, um, and not too many ands, I think uh, that often works pretty well. Lee Larson is asking about local sports. Uh, well, actually, how much to post. Um, Lee covers local sports, and it seems like you could post quite a bit about that and is wondering how how many posts is too many posts on a daily basis? How do you think about frequency and maybe what is too many? I personally don't, I mean, I don't think people mind emails that much if it's relevant to them. I don't like being, I personally don't like being bombarded with emails that are irrelevant to me. Um, I mean, I, I see some competitors in our market do that. They just or they're like sending out emails just for the sake of sending out emails. 
that said, the more I mean, the more you send out emails, I mean, the more likelihood you have of being of somebody passing it along, somebody subscribing. But I, I what I try to go by is don't annoy your customers. And so I don't know. I don't know if there's a right. I don't know if there's a right answer. And people's preferences are different. Some people might want two or three emails a day, and some people might not want but one a week. And I, I don't. I don't know that there's a great answer i would just say whatever you send out make it be good part of the thing you're doing with a subscription based publication is directing people's attention and respecting people's attention so sometimes the right thing to do is to like send out nothing it's um it's not a content machine that you need to keep feeding in order to gin up massive page views so you can get advertising it's a way to be a guide for people to help them think about what's truly important in whatever area that you're focusing on. So I do, I kind of think like if you're going to send more than one email a day, you should have a really good reason to do it. And there might be a way to create a digest, for example, as a workaround for that. If there's so much going on that's impossible, that it's all impossible to cover in one post. But I do think also that one post a day is a really good uh, sort of frequency because you create, and especially if those are going out at consistent times each day, because you create this kind of habit and you cultivate this habit uh, in the readers so they come to expect this thing to land in their own box at a certain time. They might read it over breakfast or um, read it on their way home from work or something like that. I guess I would say the other thing is if you're doing sports, I mean, I would be less inclined to you know, send out an email saying, okay, here's the game score. You know, a lot of that stuff, if it's stuff that's available on social media, you don't need to send it out, but can you take 12 hours and come out with something that's a little more thoughtful, you know, cause people can nowadays that like the, a lot of times the really breaking stuff is a commodity. And so I don't think you want to compete with that. I would prefer to do something that's take some time and do something a little more thoughtful. It's not so much the, the game story, but is there another angle, you know? Emily had a great question as well. Uh, she said her vision is to hire a freelancer or an assistant editor to get more content out more than once a week. And is wondering at what point, Tony, um, maybe you were able to bring in anyone else onto your team. What did that take? And specifically, how do you manage it tax-wise? Yeah, oh, that's a good question. I mean, um, like I said, we were free for a year and went paid in February, March of 2020, I started using freelancers actually a month or two, a couple months before that, because I knew we were going to go paid. I knew there would be some money coming in and I kind of wanted to ramp up for that. And then brought on our managing editor a month later, April of 2020. It's easier once you have money coming in. If you think it's going to work and you think there is going to be money coming in, you can sort of, and you have the cash flow, you can sort of advance it and, and or advance to yourself and just sort of, you know, pay people before that money's actually coming in. I don't know that there's a great answer. Everybody can, you know, do, do things differently. If you have a good, I mean, it is, I think, wise to start on a sort of small, you know, as opposed to bringing in a full-timer. If, if you don't know them, try them out as a, as a freelancer, or just do it per piece, or, you know, if they're doing some editing, do it on a per hour basis that you, that you agree on. Tax-wise, it is important to start doing that. It is gets a little more complicated once you have money start coming in. A lot of journalists also don't have a background in math or accounting, so I would try to get that in order. I use QuickBooks, you know, and it gets complicated 
you know, we have freelancers, I got to pay them. I need to, you know, I would also say if you're going to use freelancers, try and find a form that spells out exactly what the relationship is. Make sure that they know that they're not employees, that your form, they're probably on the internet, there's legal documents that's, you know, set it out that they're independent contractors. Um, you don't have to withhold for taxes, but uh, it is something that you should probably take a look at and not, not just ignore. It, it gets complicated the more you have, but it's, it's not a bad way to kind of get additional copy. Walter, I saw you asked for Tony and Hamish. In today's news and political climate, do you think there's room for something on Substack covering local news with a conservative bent viewed through a humorous lens? I definitely think, well, I, it depends on the, the market. If your market is dominated by liberal, well, news told through a liberal bent, then I think that that suggests there's actually a really good opportunity for news told through a conservative bent. If there are a hundred or publications already doing conservative news in that market, then maybe there's not so much. But I, I kind of think that no, almost anything can, any almost anything can work. The the have the idea of are there ten thousand people to get on the mailing list for this is still pretty important. Still really important. Um, I would, if it's like conservative news and humour, I would just sort of suggest that don't limit yourself to all th three things all the time. Like maybe sometimes it's humorous and sometimes it's not because, you know, the the market for um, conservative. New, like news told through a conservative band uh, is larger than the market for, in a, in a particular region, is larger than the market for news told for a conservative band. That's always funny. So some people might not just, you know, there will be room for the humor part, but it shouldn't necessarily be a prerequisite, would be my, my suggestion there. But yes, I, I would say that in a way, like especially if uh, coverage in your particular area feels like it's been dominated by a particular viewpoint, there can be openings for um, views from the opposite viewpoint, because maybe there's a hunger for that. Maybe there's, there's a feeling in the community that they're only hearing one side of something. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. It just, it's going to depend on your market and how big it is and what the you know, what else is going on in media in your market and what your potential customers would be like. But I think if there's one thing that Substack is taught us is that there are markets for all kinds of things that a few years ago we would have thought, oh, there's no market for that. You know, you see it, people are doing, doing work and good work on all kinds of different topics that I didn't even know existed, would never think of, um, but that are, are finding ways to resonate with readers. Uh, Tony, can you talk about your experiment with getting a bot to write an entire newsletter and how it went over? Did you do that? <laughs> I did that last week. Yeah, that was kind of fun. Um, yeah, so what I did was, you know, I've been sort of interested in this in artificial intelligence, and I always thought, oh, I need to do a story on artificial intelligence. And I came across there, there are all these um, AI programs that are out there that will basically write um, write articles for you. They're kind of designed not for news; but they're designed for these blogs that sort of just churn out a lot of content, SEO optimize them you know, sell ads, sell digital ads off of them through Google ads or something. I don't, I don't really understand that world, but I used it to write an entire edition of our newsletter. And it was sort of, I just said at the very top, Hey, this is just a fun experiment. We're just, just so you know, this was all written by a computer. I didn't have nothing to do with it. We gave it the topics and then it just, it turned it out. It was this program called conversion.ai. 
I think it's $109 a month. They had a free trial. That's what I used. And so I just gave it the topics. It spit out a bunch of stuff. It's, one of them included, you know, 11 things to do in Charlotte, North Carolina. I gave it that as a topic. And the things that came back with for people in Charlotte were sort of humorous. I mean, one of them was go to this kind of declining mall. One was buy a house. And the final one was, hey, don't don't miss having dinner at a great restaurant like Carrabba's. So, you know, it's a big Italian, it's an Italian chain restaurant. It's a chain restaurant, you know? So those were the 11 things to do, it, uh, you know, that recommended by AI. So it was kind of a fun experiment. We got a lot of good feedback on it. So it was, it was sort of fun. Uh, well, a big, big thank you to Tony for being so generous with his time today and for sharing his learnings with us. Thank you for tuning in. Being an independent writer shouldn't mean being alone. The Substack Writer Community is here for you. We're hosting an ongoing series of workshops and interviews designed to accelerate and celebrate writers who are publishing on Substack. To sign up for a future event, visit substack.com events or read more about what we learned at these events at library.substack.com. We'll see you soon.